I think that Jesus came and preached peace to the Ephesians when the gospel was preached to them. I think that Jesus came and preached when the gospel was preached to them. And that was not something that he did physically or in his body. I think that what, what, uh, what Paul is saying is that when Christ is preached, Christ is preaching. So who came to you? Think, who, who's the person who told you about Jesus for the first time? Or who's the person who told you about Jesus and you were converted? You remember that person? You remember their face? Remember the conversation? But Jesus was also preaching to you. I think that's what this says, that when the gospel is preached, when Christ is preached, Christ is preaching. Jesus himself personally came and preached the good news to you through that person who shared the gospel with you. This doesn't mean that every time someone stands up and preaches that Christ is preaching through them, but it does mean that when you are preaching Christ, Christ accompanies that preaching and preaches himself to the hearts of the people who are listening. When Christ is preached, Christ is preaching. Which has huge implications in our homiletics. I mean, this, this gives you a backbone in preaching the gospel. Because it's, it's not that you are standing by yourself and preaching. It is that you are preaching, and as the word goes forth, it goes forth in power because Christ himself is preaching to the audience and making those words effective through his spirit. I mean, this, this shows, it gives you confidence, but it also should, in one sense, terrify us at the thought that the task we have in preaching is a, it's a holy task in which God the Son is intimately involved as he preaches through us. What do you guys think about that? What, uh, if you were to make, I've done this a couple times, but if you're writing your application journal, let's just think about this. The implications of Christ-centered preaching that this has. So what are your thoughts on that in relation to ministry? That's great. My sheep hear my voice. That's, That's a great connection. And his sheep, through our preaching, hear his voice. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism, I quoted this in our Prolegomena class. You know what it calls the preaching of the Word of God? If you remember this from the class. It says the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. That's a reformed confession, right? Inasmuch in our preaching as we are saying, thus says the Lord, and we're preaching the words in these pages... The preaching of the word itself is the word of God. I mean, this is a high view of preaching that that Paul is putting forth here. And inasmuch as we're preaching Christ himself in all of Scripture, Christ is making that effective in the hearts of people. So if if you want effective preaching, if you want conversion, if you want 
the church to be built. The way to do it is not through gimmicks and tricks. Right? It's not through pretending to heal people or pretending to speak in tongues or pretending to cast out demons. Or even in, in my country, um, having people in the congregation who pretend to be converted to encourage conversions. Or having people like zip line to the pulpit or ride motorcycles to the pulpit and things like that. Like gimmicky stuff. It's by faithfully preaching this book and watching people be transformed. I mean, I think, I mean, Michael is right here. If, look at how quickly this church has grown. We haven't, we're not even one year old yet. And just through faithful, Christ-centered preaching, we, are, we already can't even sit, seat people in these chairs. That's an evidence of that. People are hungry for the actual gospel and not the fake stuff. Not the tricks, not the gimmicks. If you want to grow your church, you preach Christ. And you trust him to make that effective in the lives of people. And this gets, this gets next to, I want to think about Jesus as the cornerstone of the temple. Okay. Um, I'm going to have my iPad up here. We'll go back to the other ideas in this passage, but I think this flows very well into the idea of Christ as the cornerstone. So let's think about how the cornerstone functioned in the building of a building. You guys know what the cornerstone was? Like, we know the metaphor from the Bible, but do you actually know what a cornerstone was when you build a building? What was a cornerstone, A.B.? Yeah, yeah, it was it was used in like the making of the houses. Yeah, what what's that, Mikey? It looks like here. I think it's like the last piece uh, that sets all the structure. Yeah, it's not the last piece though, but it does set the structure. It's the first piece. That's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. So uh, this is how a cornerstone functions. If you're building a building, the first piece you put down is the cornerstone. The cornerstone, of course, is the stone that goes in the corner. <laughs> so, so it's the stone that goes in the corner, and then as you're building the wall, which this is a, this is a growing temple, right? That's the metaphor. It's a temple that's growing. So as you're building the wall, what you always do, let's say you're doing the next step in the next stage in the wall, the next stage in the wall, and then you want to build this part. What you the next part of the wall. Okay, we're looking at a building from the, from the top. Like this is like, yeah, yeah, this is like a bird's eye view, yeah. So if you're slowly building this building, you do it in segments, right? So you, you build this next section of the wall, and then you build this next section of the wall, and then you build this next section of the wall. And then if you're going to build this section, what you don't do is you don't look at the previous section you built. You don't look at what you just built before. Because if you do that, the wall is going to look something like what I drew here. It's going to be like slowly going sideways. Like you're not following the cornerstone. You're not following the clear, uh, the clear angle of the building. So what you did when you built the next section of the building was you looked at the cornerstone. You always kept looking back to the cornerstone because the cornerstone told you if you were building in the right direction. So one, one side of the building might go straight, and the other side of the building might 
slowly curve in. If you weren't looking at the cornerstone, the cornerstone ensured that the building was square. Now this is wildly significant for our ministry. Because as we, as ministers of the gospel, are building the temple, and people are being added to the temple, what we look to is Christ. If you want, if you, if you want to know what success in ministry looks like, it doesn't look like innovation. It doesn't look like coming up with the latest and greatest stuff. It looks like looking at what is very ancient and very old. It, it, it means looking at the cornerstone. It means always looking back to Jesus in our counseling ministries, in our preaching ministries, in our evangelism ministries. It, looks, it means like going, always going back to the gospel. And as soon as we abandon the gospel, as soon as we abandon Christ, the building becomes off-center. The angle gets all wrong. And you have to, and what, what, what's difficult is then you have to undo that. Right? You have to undo that and then look back to the cornerstone and rebuild where people have built in a way that doesn't look back at the cornerstone, doesn't look back at Jesus and the gospel. Right? I think, I think the great question of our age, the great, great, great question for us as pastors, the great question for us as the next generation of church leaders is this. How will people remember us? How will the next generation remember us? Will the next generation look at us and say, I wish they had preached Christ. I wish they'd look back at the cornerstone. I wish we didn't have to clean up this mess. Or they look back and say, we built faithfully. That's the question this text prompts. Will we be preaching Christ? Will we be evangelizing with Christ? Will we be uh, doing our discipleship ministries, pointing people to Christ? Our counseling ministries will be pointing people to the one who is the wonderful counselor. Or are we looking to whatever is new and flashy that the West is doing? The latest prosperity gospel trend. What brings people to church, now I think, Nice buildings are important, and nice buildings are nice. What brings people to church is not nice buildings and nice backdrops and the right lighting and pyrotechnics and stuff like that. That's not what brings people to church. That's not what converts people. That's not what secures them in their faith. It's Jesus. May, may He be exalted in every aspect of our ministry. And may, there, may, may it not be said of us that we did not look back at the cornerstone as we were building the temple. So here's the question. What do you do if you're in a context, a context like me in my country, a context like you in your country, when you've inherited, you've inherited a ministry, responsibility, where people did not look at the cornerstone. Our parents did not look at the cornerstone. Our parents were not Christ-centered and not gospel-centered. What do you do? Yeah, you have to rebuild. And you have to tear down, too. The wall is not straight. You have to tear down and rebuild. What does that look like practically? 
like in your context? What does that look like? Yeah, legalism. That's good. Yeah, tearing, preaching against legalism and preaching the free grace of Christ. I love it. What else does it look like? Yeah. Tearing down the walls of the prosperity gospel and preaching Christ. Good. Yep, Siga. Seeing God as what? Sorry? Yeah, seeing, like dualism. Seeing God and Satan as equal rivals in this war. Tearing that down and preaching the end of Ephesians 1. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not just our ministries, but our lives as well. Because this is, if you look at the qualifications for a pastor, the qualifications for a pastor are there because pastors uniquely show what a life transformed by the gospel looks like. It's not a list for you to go to it and uh, either one beat yourself up because you feel like you don't meet these qualifications perfectly, or two, hide the ways you don't meet the qualifications so that you can actually do ministry because that's the only thing you're actually good at. (laughs) When God chooses a person for ministry, He especially sanctifies them in those ways and transforms their lives by the gospel so that people can say, what does a life, a gospel-centered, a gospel-transformed life look like? It looks like my pastor. Not perfectly, but it looks like him. And, and if I can follow him, then I can follow Christ. So yeah, a life that's gospel-centered, a life that's transformed by the gospel, and a life that is, allows God to transform us by the gospel. That's fantastic. Um, counseling ministries. So depending on what part of my country you come from, Counseling ministries either, uh, people think about it one of two ways. You know, the, the southern part of the U.S. is a shame culture. Very similar to Ethiopia, actually. It's a shame culture. Like, like the worst thing that can happen to you is that the community thinks poorly of you. If the community thinks poorly of you, you've lost value. Right? And people, people, as soon as you do something that brings shame on yourself or shame on everyone else, everyone knows it right away, right? <laughs> the gossip just spreads immediately. There's, there's hardly any time between the shameful act and the shame the community brings to you. Uh, so when people think of counseling ministries in the church, to admit you need help is a very difficult thing. Because you're afraid of the shame that's going to bring on you. What if people see me talking to the pastor? What if people see me crying while I talk to the pastor? Or or me and my wife go, and they see my wife crying while I'm talking to the pastor. What are they going to think of me? What are they going to think of us? I'm guessing it's something similar here, is it? So then if you as a pastor have that view that counseling is for like the messed up people versus for every Christian, then all of a sudden you you start approaching it as like crisis 
And, and once, you, once you approach it like this is a crisis moment, then all of a sudden you, you start becoming worried. What do I do? What do I say? I've got to fix this right now. And then it's very easy, if, you, if you're not thinking of the long-term game and long-term transformation, it's very easy to start just throwing law at people instead of gospel. Knowing the gospel transforms, so that's not what we need right now. What we need right now is a quick fix to make these people start behaving rightly. And then you start to perpetuate that idea that only the really bad people go and talk to the pastor about their problems. But a, go- a gospel-centered view of discipleship and counseling a, a gospel-centered, Christ-centered. What I do is I point people to Jesus, who is the wonderful counselor, the one who can actually come and through his gospel preach peace to you once again and remind you that you are a child of God. As you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, Second Corinthians, you're transformed from one degree of glory to another. I mean, every, I'm talking every aspect of our life and ministry has to look back to the cornerstone. Any other ideas on that? before we keep going? Yeah. Yeah, go for it. Yes, we're building together. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, together we are looking back to the cornerstone. And sometimes we come alongside our brothers and we say, hey, what you just did, did you forget the cornerstone? Did you forget Christ? Did you forget the gospel as you were continuing to build this temple? We're all laboring together to make this temple, <laughs> to build this temple, and we have to keep looking back to Christ. That's excellent, yeah. yeah that's a ministry that in, in a city where gospel centrality is not common. That's a unique ministry, I think, that each man in this room has to each other. Reminding each other that Christ is the cornerstone, and we build in reference to him. That's very fantastic, yeah. Yes. Yes. That will free you. As a, as a pastor, so especially as a young guy who's just been to Bible college, this is the temptation. Okay, this is the temptation is to look just for quick fixes and forget that the person you're looking at, that you have a lifetime with them. Like we're, we're, the results I'm looking for may be 20 years down the road. It may take 20 years for this person I'm speaking with to stop looking at pornography. It might take 20 years for this person I'm working with to stop getting angry. It might take 20 years for this person to stop being addicted to alcohol. But if that's the timing that God chooses, then that's okay. And what we do is we walk beside them in that journey and preach the gospel to them faithfully. Call them to repentance, of course, and celebrate victories, mourn with them in losses, but always keep pointing them back to Christ because Christ, the one who preaches when he's preached, he's the only hope. You can talk more about this in your counseling classes as well, but I just kind of want you to see that in this, in this very dense theological passage, there's golden nuggets of gospel centrality here. Let's let's talk next about, unless there's any other ideas, 
Jesus replaces circumcision, is what this text is saying. And as he does so, he gives us access to the Father. Right? What the ceremonial laws did, now Jesus does. The ceremonial laws were what you needed if you wanted to come to the presence of God. You needed to become Jewish. No longer. Now, you need to be an in Christ person. You need to be a new creation kingdom person. And if you are, then you have access to the Father. So you're no longer, verse 19, you're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You're fellow citizens. You're no longer excluded from the citizenship of Israel. You no longer don't have a home. You now have a home in Jesus. You're not strangers and wanderers any longer. You have full rights and full privileges and full access to God through Christ. You need nothing else. You don't need circumcision to come to Jesus or to come to the Father. You need Jesus Christ. And in as much as you are in Him, you have full, unhindered access to God to walk into the Holy of Holies, where the priest could only go once a year, the high priest. Now you can walk in as a son or daughter of God. Imagine you wanted to go and see Dr. Dr. Robbie. You, You can't just walk in, can you? unannounced, with no appointment. You can't just walk in. But if you know someone who works with him, some, maybe a security guard, maybe, maybe someone who's his right-hand man, maybe, and, and you can walk into his presence because you're with that guy. And maybe the security guard comes to you and says, hey, you can't come in here. And you say, I'm with him, it's okay. He's my friend. And because of that, you walk with confidence right into the throne room. There's nowhere you can't go. You have full unhindered access, not because of you, but because of who is with you. Because Jesus Christ gives you access. You have full access to God. And we're, we're all together this new temple. All of us together. This is the first time the temple has been explicit in the letter, but it's been hinted at with the unity of heaven and earth language. The temple is the place where heaven and earth dwell together in one location. And like Eden, hum- humans and God are one in location and purpose. Earth and heaven are one in location and purpose in the new creation kingdom temple. The place is the place of meeting with God. You're no longer without God. You have full access to God. And eschatologically, the temple, uh, especially in Isaiah, was to be the place where all of the nations meet with God. Where you saw uh, my house, we call it a house of prayer for all people. Isaiah 66, Isaiah 2. Every nation will flow up to the mountain of the Lord. And we, we are that new creation, kingdom, temple, where everyone has full access to God. Okay, apostles and prophets. The foundation, yeah.
The first thing that comes to mind is John 4, worshiping in spirit and in truth. Probably Paul has in mind the unity of the way that we come to God through the one person and through the one spirit, because Paul says the same thing in chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit. I think it's the other place he says one spirit. It might be the only other place he says one spirit in Ephesians. Yeah, I would say he's emphasizing not necessarily the role of the Spirit in this text. He does, he does so elsewhere. Instead, he's emphasizing the fact that there's one way to have access to God for Jews and Gentiles. There's not two ways, there's one way. That's my initial answer. Apostles and prophets. I think these are... Um, New Testament apostles and prophets who have a unique redemptive historical role in first century New Testament apostles and prophets who have a unique redemptive historical role in laying the foundation. Temporally, they are the foundation. Apostles and prophets who receive revelation from God in chapter 3 laid the foundation of the church in a redemptive historical way that was unique and can never be duplicated again. Any pushback on that? Or any questions about that? We'll talk more about apostles and prophets when we get to chapter 4. But right now I just kind of want to... There's three references to apostles and prophets in Ephesians. This is the first one. And what these apostles and prophets are becomes increasingly difficult as the book goes on, actually. Good. Um... So one more application of this text. There's no room for racism in the people of God. There's no room for racism in the people of God. There's no room for saying my ethnicity is superior within the people of God to another ethnicity. There's no room for finding our identity in our skin color, in who our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents were. There's no room for any sense of superiority in the church. Because we have all been united in Christ. There's no room for thinking my culture has unique, a unique monopoly on access to God because of the way that we worship. Or that other ways of gaining access to God are a deviant from that. Or that, like the Judaizers, if you want to worship God, you need to become a part of my culture and worship God the way my culture does. That's what the Judaizers were doing. We can say the Judaizers, we can look at the Judaizers a couple ways. One, yes, they were the circumcision party. But if we want to step back and say, what were they? They were racist. You need, if you want to have access to God, you need to do it the way my culture does it. And this new stuff, this in Christ stuff is not enough. You need to sing our songs. You need to play with our instruments. You need to do it our way. There's no room for that in the people of God. There's no room for having different services for different races and different ethnicities. There's no room for having churches that are dedicated to one tribe. Or having the French church and the Habashal church. 
There's no room for that. And in as much as the place you live is multi-ethnic, your church should strive to be multi-ethnic. Now, if you're living in a place where there's not a lot of ethnicities represented, right, then you, it's not like you need to pray that God would bring some people from another country here so that we can have some, some different color skin people in the church. But if your city is multi-ethnic and your church is not multi-ethnic, you have to ask the question, why? And is it because we're teaching things similar to the Judaizers? That to be close to God, you need to do it our way. Or do our services allow for different expressions, different ethnicities to worship God? We talked about this earlier, but uh, any new questions on that based on this text? I taught this class once before here, and I asked this question. I, uh, part, of me, part of me was asking in ignorance, but another part of me was not. Like, I knew what the answer was, but I just wanted to see what would happen. I said, is racism a problem in, in Ethiopia? And they said, I mean, everyone was adamant. No one had a mild opinion. But it was very mixed, if it was yes or no. And sometimes I think the, the racist tendencies we have, we don't even see. I mean, right now, it's pretty clear that there are ethnic divisions in this country, and that only Jesus can solve them. But are there even ways that we're not aware that we're putting other races down or thinking that we're superior? Superior in this text in a religious sense or in a spiritual sense. Any other ideas about that? I know we already talked about that earlier, so I don't want to say enough for a long time, but if there are any new ideas or thoughts about how that applies to ministry here, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Yeah, linguistic barriers. I love, uh, I mean, if, if, if there's just people who aren't bilingual, like they can't, they just can't worship together, right? But if you are bilingual, if you, there is a common language, then that shows the opportunity for unity. But also, I mean, I love singing songs in languages that remind us that there are people from other ethnicities in our church. Right? So not every song needs to be in English. Or not every song needs to be in the language that 100% of the members of the congregation understand. And... and not every prayer needs to be in the language that everyone understands, if there, especially this interpretation of what the prayer is saying. Yeah, I think, I think there are ways that in a single church we can grow a multi-ethnic community. I mean, these are the same questions that they, these guys were asking, too. Like, we have the theology. What's, what do we do with it? But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. 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 It seems like even those who 
Yes. Of course they. Yeah. That's a great question. That's a very good question. Um, beyond the concern that I would have with multiple services, I'll put that aside. I'll put the idea of multiple services aside. I think that if, if you were doing multiple services with more than one language, uh, and there was some kind of, there were some people who could go to a service in one language, or there are some people who could go to a service that's bilingual, right? Um, I think that you would have to work very hard to make sure that people don't get the impression that the church is divided. I think if you pastorally address it, right, this is an opportunity for us as a church to minister to all kinds of people because God sent his son to die for all kinds of people. And at the end, there's going to be people from all every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And maybe even have people from the different services, like lead worship or something like that, or lead one song. There's, or have someone from the Amharic-speaking service pray in the English-speaking service, or vice versa. Some ways to promote that unity that doesn't block people off because they can't understand what's going on. I think, I think beyond the speaking in tongues concept in 1 Corinthians 14, the concept is that if what's happening in the service is unintelligible, it doesn't help anyone. If people can't understand what's happening, then they're not being ministered to. So uh, sitting in a service where you can't understand a single thing that's going on is unhelpful. And I would apply 1 Corinthians 14 like that. John Calvin actually applied 1 Corinthians 14 to Latin services in Roman Catholic context. No one speaks Latin. 1 Corinthians 14 says people have to understand what's going on if they're going to be ministered to. So you can't do services in a language people can't understand. Um, but I would say, in as much as we can work to incorporate all the ethnicities represented in our church in the formal service, we should. And draw attention to where God is doing this. Great. So the big picture, though, big picture is look to Christ as the foundation of your ministry. And look, look to make sure your church represents the ethnicity of your community. If your church doesn't represent the ethnic, the ethnic diversity of your community, uh, pray that that would happen. Pray that God would cause that to happen, I think. Not in like a critical theory kind of way. Like, we need to hear from this person especially, but in a way that exalts and honors Jesus Christ as the one who saves people from every nation. Again, uh, we're going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 is our next section. Next pericope. I'm going to read it to you, and as I do, I want you to think about two questions, right? Question one, how does it relate to the previous pericope, 2, 1 through 11, right? We're learning how to trace the argument of Paul. And then secondly, how does it relate to chapter 1, verse 10? So I'll read it to us. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery is made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, 
according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I'm asking you not to lose heart, over which I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Okay, guys, ask our two questions. How does it relate to chapter 1, verse 10? And how does it relate to the previous pericope? Okay, let's come back together. <clears throat> so what did, your group, what did your group say? What's the connection between this text and the previous section? Yeah. No, Faisal, go ahead. Yeah, the unity of the people of God, the unity of the people of God. Good. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The eternal purpose of God was the unification of all things in Christ. Jews and Gentiles together. What 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 the second the previous section was about. Excellent. What else? How else does it relate to the previous section? Yeah, Mikey. Verse 6, this must be that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the gospel is the means by which Gentiles are fellow heirs with Jews in the promise. Yeah, the gospel is the means through which both Jews and Gentiles inherit the promises. And are of the same body. And are of the same body. Excellent. Good. The gospel is the only thing that can do that. Good. Muhammad, did you have something? Yes. Um, all humans must come to Christ Yeah. And that's a significant thing, actually, because there are some people who ask the question, if you're Jewish, do you need to stop being Jewish? to get the, all the promises, right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, this is probably the most detailed description of the mystery. Because Jews and Gentiles through the gospel become part of the same body, and Paul is motivated to go and preach to the Gentiles. I love that. Yeah, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think, I think instead he's saying that he has been given by Jesus the apocalypse, and now he wants these people to experience the apocalypse as well. But he's not saying that different people have different revelations or disjointed revelations or things like that. He's saying, he calls it, actually, look at Galatians. I think it's one. I can't remember the verse. Let me see. Sorry, uh, yeah, three times. Twice in Romans and once in Timothy, call, Paul calls the gospel my gospel. 
Is that, is that to say that, like, you're following Paul, or Paul is a special revelation from God, and so you're following his gospel? No, I think he's, first, he's making it more personal. Um, but secondly, I think he's, he's just saying the, the proclamation that I'm sending out, right? He identifies himself with the message that he's proclaiming. And I think he does something similar here in Ephesians, but it's a good question. Good. Uh, so there's no other ideas. We can go ahead and start getting into the text. Now, did you notice that little, my ESV has this little dash right here, right? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. You notice at the end, uh, or the beginning of verse 14, he starts with, for this reason, once again. You see that? I can scroll down to it. For this reason, I bow my knees. So he starts a prayer in verse 14. And in verse 1, he begins a prayer. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, I would assume that what he's about to say is, bow my knee before the Father. But he interrupts himself and starts saying, wait a second, you might not be familiar with my ministry. You might not be familiar with the fact that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. So let me start talking about that and why and what that ministry looks like. Right? And then he gets into the actual prayer right here, which I think is significant for how we read the prayer. The prayer is in response. So the, the verse 14, the for this reason, I bow my knees. The for this reason, the reason he prays is the temple. He's not praying because I want you to not lose heart. He's praying because of the new creation temple. I think it's, that's significant to, to realize structurally. Um, because Gentiles have been brought near to God, Paul begins to pray. And then it, it enters into uh, what's called a digression. It's, a, it's an ancient form of um, rhetoric or arguing. Um, in order to strengthen your argument, you want to bring the people you're talking to into your personal life a little bit. So you'd start a sentence, stop the sentence, and then start it up again. We have other... This happens throughout the, the world. This is a common rhetorical device in Paul's day. That's what I'm saying. Where in order to, to try to convince people more, you bring them in on your personal life. I think that's what Paul's doing here. So... Why, why is Paul writing this section? Why does he use the digression? What, is, what concern does he want to address? Look at verse 13. The whole purpose of this section is, I do not want you to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think so. I think that's where he goes, goes with this. Okay. We have to remember everything he says here. I mean, he goes into some deep theology for sure, but the whole point of this is I don't want you to become discouraged. That's why he writes this whole section. I want you to imagine with me, you're living in the first century, and maybe a family member or a close friend who sees that you're a follower of King Jesus. You tell them, I'm part of the new creation kingdom, you know. And they say to you, oh, that's great. Where's, where's your leader? Can I go talk to him? Where's this Jesus guy? And you say, well, he died. He, he was resurrected, though, and he's in heaven right now, but we can't go talk to him. Oh, 
And how did he die? He was crucified. Oh, wow, okay. Well, who's, I mean, if he's not here, then who's carrying on this new creation kingdom thing? And you say, well, this guy Paul, this guy Paul is writing all these letters, and he's planting churches, like, it's, the kingdom's spreading, it's great. And they say, great, let's go talk to Paul. And you say, uh, actually, he's in prison. I think that's what he's addressing here. And the question would be, has Rome stopped the kingdom? Should you be discouraged that Jesus was killed by the Romans and Paul is imprisoned by the Romans? Has Rome won and the new creation kingdom has failed? That's the question, I think, that's in the backs of their minds. Or like this, is the gospel bound because Paul is bound? Is it going to stop going forward because the guy who's leading the charge is in prison? And there, there were social, there's social baggage that goes along with this also. If you know someone who's been to prison, what do you think of that person? Are they a good guy or a bad guy? Bad, bad guy, yeah. And do they, ever, do they ever live that down? Like, if they've gone to prison, it's probably because they've done something wrong. Right? So, let's say they go to prison for like five years, they get out of prison. Does anyone ever forget that that person went to prison? You always remember, that guy went to prison. Or, if you're part of their family, like maybe your son goes to prison. If your son goes to prison, what does that mean for you? Well, there's dishonor and shame brought on you also. Right? Everyone knows that's the guy whose son went to prison. There's social shame that comes with this. And, and the, the, the common assumption would be, in Paul's day like it is in our day, if he went to prison, he probably deserved it. He probably did something wrong. Like That's what people assume. And, and it potentially casts a very poor light on all of Christianity. If, if the leader of your movement is in jail... Should we even trust this whole Jesus thing anyway? Isn't it in an insurrection? You're claiming Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus is Lord in opposition to Caesar. Aren't you guys trying to overthrow the government? You see, that's, that's the stigma that would have come with it. Was there a question, Isagor? Okay. Yeah. Yes, good. Yeah, there were people in Paul's day that were looking at his suffering and saying, don't you see he's not a real apostle? If he were a real apostle, he wouldn't be suffering. You, you know what Paul says, actually, at the end of Galatians? This is one of my favorite things that Paul says. Uh, okay, yeah, Galatians 6.17. Sorry it took me a while to find it. The... The argument in Galatians is that you don't need to receive circumcision to be part of the covenant community, to be justified. You don't need circumcision. And look at what Paul says in verse 17 of Galatians 6. 
From now on, let no one cause me any trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. If you want to ask Paul what in his flesh shows he's a Christian, what in his flesh shows he's a follower of Christ, he doesn't say circumcision. He says, my stripes, my beatings, my bruises. If you want want to play the game of who has the marks of being a Christian, look at my back. I was beaten many times. Maybe it was this in Corinthians, right? A shipwrecked. Yeah. The, the true, that, that's what Paul looks at as the true sign of his apostleship and true sign he's a follower of Jesus. It's not that he hasn't suffered. It's how much he's suffered. Yes, I think, I think the question would be then, naturally, is there any legitimacy to the Jesus movement? Is the new creation kingdom real or no? Will it win or no? And the Ephesians, the Ephesians probably would have wondered about this especially because, remember Artemis? Artemis was said to be the queen of heaven. What does that sound a lot like? The queen of heaven? Yeah, or even Jesus seated in the heavenly places, right? And there were prophecies that she would be worshipped throughout the world also. And she had special power over everyone else in the spiritual realm. So especially for the Ephesians who are receiving this, there would be special shame that perhaps Jesus is not king and maybe Artemis is. Maybe Artemis is the real queen of the world. And maybe we should follow her. So Paul, Paul contrasts this. What does he call himself in verse 1? I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 1. What does he call himself to like immediately put any of this aside? He calls himself an apostle. Apostle means sent one, right? How can you be a sent one while you're chained? <laughs> How can you be going with a message if you're in prison? Okay, that immediately tips us off to Paul does not think the gospel has stopped because he's in prison. And who is he a prisoner of in chapter 3, verse 1? Not Caesar, Jesus. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's there by the will of the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's not there by accident. Paul's confident of this. He's there because God loves to work through weakness. And God's salvific plans often seem counterintuitive. And just thinking about Paul's suffering as a prisoner, think about this. How many of Paul's letters did he write while he was in prison? How many of Paul's letters did he write while he was in prison? Almost all of them. In his Roman imprisonment, I think he wrote like four or five, something like that. If Paul had never gone to prison, he would never have written those letters. And we would not be studying Ephesians today. You think about that? When Paul, Paul says that this suffering is for your glory, is what he ends up saying. If you, and and Paul, Paul knew a little bit of what that meant, that he was strengthening these churches. But let's think about that 2,000 years later. The reason we have most of our New Testament is because Paul suffered. And if Paul, what, 
I mean, this didn't happen, of course, but what if, I mean, just imagine Paul sitting in jail and an angel comes to him or something, gives something he, gives, he gets a vision of us sitting in this room reading this letter. Because like, God loves to work through suffering. And if Paul had never suffered, we would not be here right now. Because the gospel goes forward in suffering. And the more they're oppressed and the more they're persecuted, the more they multiply. Exodus 1. And aren't you glad that Paul went to prison? Because if he didn't go to prison, we would not be here in this room studying this book right now. So let's, let's start to, to think more about what Paul says in this section, in his digression. He wants to share, first, the revelation of the mystery. The revelation of the mystery. Paul calls it his stewardship in verse 2. His stewardship of the grace of God. Stewards in the ancient world were people who received a message and were called to bring the message to someone else. He's, he's intended to bring the message of salvation to these other people and not to corrupt the message. Our goal in preaching, our goal in preaching is what's called a stewardship principle the herald principle, if you want to call it that, whatever you want to call it. Like Paul, our goal is fidelity to the message. Paul's goal as a steward was fidelity to the message that he had been given, to not change it, to not twist it in any way, but to hear the message from Jesus and pass it on faithfully to the churches, to the next generation, to not drop the ball, to not drop the baton as it passes off to the next generation, that every generation would know the gospel that had been preached by Paul. So what is, what is Paul's revelation? Paul's revelation, the mystery, he calls it the mystery of Christ, what Jesus is doing in the heavenly realm and on the earthly realm. But it's specifically that Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ. Specifically, that eschatologically, there is no distinction in the people of God. There is no distinction in the people of God, eschatologically. They're one. They all inherit the promise. Now, how does God reveal this mystery? How does God reveal this mystery? Look at verse 5. It was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So there, that means the mystery was made known to the sons of men in previous generations, to the writers of Scripture before, or those who received special revelation before. They did know about it, but not, as, not to the full degree. The mystery was there, but now it has been fully revealed. So that you can read, this is a great argument for New Testament priority. I'm not going to spend much time here because we've talked about it so much in our hermeneutics class. But Paul understands the mystery to a greater degree than the Old Testament writers did, which means the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. Once you've had the revelation of the mystery, you are more able to understand what 
was present in the Old Testament and hidden in God for ages, once you've had the revelation. It was revealed, but not to the same degree, not to the same understanding. So now it has been revealed to the apostles and the prophets. It has been revealed to the apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. So how, who are these apostles, who are these prophets? So I think these are first century apostles and prophets. Played a unique redemptive historical role in the establishment of the new creation kingdom. So the apostles were the ones who had firsthand eyewitness of the Christ event. It was revealed to them by the Spirit as they looked at Jesus personally. And the prophets are those who were not witnesses of the Christ event, but received revelation from the Spirit of the significance of the Christ event. So we could say it like this, the apostles had the unique message because they had been with Christ, and the prophets had the the confirmatory message. The prophets wrote the scripture, the prophets confirmed what the apostles were writing, I think. Because we don't have any record of prophets writing scripture. Prophecy seems to function very differently than that in the New Testament. But they did receive it by revelation that what the apostles were saying were true and sought to apply it in different contexts in different churches. And again, I think this is a reference to Daniel 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So Nebuchadnezzar dreamed that in the future there would be a kingdom that could not be shaken, that would be established, and it would fill the whole earth. And the apostles and the prophets uniquely have, it has been revealed to them uniquely that this has happened in Christ. This has happened in Christ, which this gives us permission to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We don't we don't throw away what the Old Testament writers said or what they intended, but we do read it in light of the Christ event. We read it through the lens of the cross. Now it's revealed to them by the Spirit. It's revealed to both apostles and prophets by the Spirit, but I don't think it was revealed to them the same way by the Spirit. Apostles witnessed the Christ event, and the Spirit gave them understanding of the significance of the Christ event. Even even the apostles themselves needed convincing that Jesus was who he claimed to be. Thomas doubted. Even at the end, when uh, the apostles are gathered uh, in Matthew 28... Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Right? Or Peter, who says, you are the Christ. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. He says the Father revealed it to you, but I think we can also say that it's, it's an example of this needed revelation by the Spirit that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. It wasn't enough for the apostles to just look at Christ and know the Spirit had to accompany their witnessing those events with eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that want to understand. The prophets, though, were not ones that had seen Christ directly. And so the Spirit reveals to them in special, revel- special revelations through prophecies, through dreams, through visions, that what the, the apostles are saying is true. They're called holy, holy apostles and prophets. It's not to say that there are special, special Christians, because all Christians are holy, chapter 1, right? All Christians are saints. It's in reference to their being set apart for this special purpose of receiving the mystery and explaining the mystery. 
They're commissioned by God to bring the mystery, and they're set apart for that purpose. They're set apart by God to be recipients of the revelation of the significance of the Christ event and proclaim it. Any questions on that? Yeah. Yeah. That's right, yeah. I think, I think it implies that both the apostles and the prophets are part of the same generation. So are they, uh, are the apostles and the prophets are removed from what they Yeah, yeah I think they have to be New Testament prophets because it's been revealed to them in a way that was not revealed to the sons of men in previous generations. They have a unique revelation, so I think that that means that the apostles and prophets are part of the same generation and the prophets are New Testament prophets. But it's a good question, right? I, I, think, I think it's possible to read the Apostles and Prophets in chapter 2 as Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. It's, it's possible, but I don't think so because of this text. This te- Paul uses Apostles and Prophets three times, and I think he needs to use them consistently. If he doesn't use them consistently, um, yeah, I would, I would anticipate him using it consistently unless something came about that would cause me to not think that he did. My default is to read it consistently. Good question, though. Yeah. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think Paul's explicit in that. Good. Any other questions on that? Okay, so let's talk about the content of the mystery. What is the mystery? Now, there's more to the mystery than this. We said the mystery is the unification of all things in Christ, the things in heaven and things on earth. But an expression of the mystery, and in fact the core expression of the mystery, is there's no eschatological distinction between Jews and Gentiles in God's saving plan. They're united. Like heaven and earth are united. And heaven and earth will itself be united one day. Jews and Gentiles share equally in the promises, in the promises of God. And not only the Holy Spirit, but all of the promises. And now, we have a major event in the class. This is significant. I want everyone to look up here. This is significant. Is everyone ready for the significant moment? Are you guys ready for this? We just turned the first page in Ephesians. We're done with the first two pages, and we just turned. We're on the third page now, my friends. Well done. We are making progress. Good work. So Paul, Paul gives three descriptions of how Jews and Gentiles are together in the eschatological people of God. Right? The three descriptions are they are heirs together, they're members of one body, and they share together. And, and just like in Ephesians 2, remember the three verbs that had the soon prefix? We have the same thing here. Three verbs with the soon prefix. They are fellow inheritors, they are of the same body, and they are fellow partakers. It's the same thing we saw in Ephesians 2. In that you are united with Christ, you are seated with Him, you're raised with Him, you're brought to life with Him. So Jews and Gentiles, again three verbs, are heirs together, they're members of the same body, and they're sharers together. So, heirs together 
references, again, the Old Testament idea of inheritance. And we saw that already in chapter 1, verse 14. The inheritance that we all have in the new heavens and new earth. We're fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. But it's not that there are some members of the people of God who have the inheritance, who have the promises, who have everything that was promised by God in the Old Testament, and some don't. All of them inherit every promise together. Because if there's more than one people of God, then there's more than one plan of God, and then God's ultimate goal is not to unite all things in Christ. So again, I, I want to be kind to my dispensationalist brothers, but Paul's whole argument is that if there's eschatological distinction in the people of God, then there's more than one plan of God. If there's more than one plan of God, then God's plan is not to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. It, this, this theology of Paul comes from Ephesians 1.10. Next, they're part of the same body. I mean, that was Paul's argument in chapter 2, right? That we're part of the same body. We're part of the new humanity in Christ. We're, we're full members of God's covenant dealings with his people. That's what it means. We're full members of God's covenant dealings with his people. There's no members of the people of God who share in more of the promises and some that share in less of the promises. They all are part of the same body. They're all reconciled together. They all partake fully in all of the promises. And that's the climax of the series. They share together. They're partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus. Uh, Clinton Arnold said this in his commentary, the threefold stress on together emphasizes the obliteration of any distinction in God's ways of bringing salvation to his people. God's people will now be identified by their togetherness in a multi-ethnic loving group empowered by the, empowered by the Spirit rather than by circumcision, ritual purity, and bloody sacrifices. How do you know who's part of the people of God? How do you know you're part of those who are the families being reconciled to God? You know it because you're in Christ. You know it because this one body has access to God, not through Jewish shadow ways, but through Jesus Christ himself. So then upon hearing the gospel, there's a change of status from, for these Gentiles. They go from people outside of the covenant to people inside the covenant. They go from people without hope and without God to full inheritors of every promise in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul says next. How do they inherit? How are they part of the same body? How, do they, uh, how are they partakers together? It's in Christ. Jesus' single work in bringing people to God ensures there's only one way to have access to God. It's not by relationship to Abraham, it's by relationship to Jesus. It's not by external covenant markers of circumcision. It's not by bloody sacrifices. It's by union with Christ. The last sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice, who has done away with the ceremonial systems so that all of the people of God can have full and complete access to God. It's not in repeating bloody sacrifices, it's in looking to Christ. So what this means is when Gentiles hear the message of the gospel, they become children of Abraham. They become the true Israel. They become the true people of God, and they are fully, become full inheritors of every promise that God has ever made. Because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We spend extensive time looking at Galatians 3, but if you have the Spirit, you're Abraham's offspring, and you are an heir according to the promise. And don't assume that all Israel is Israel. Romans 9. And Matthew 7, 
I'm sorry, Matthew 3, 7 through 9, where Jesus calls the Pharisees the seed of the serpent, even though they are the seed of Abraham. Don't assume that because you have Abraham's blood, you're Abraham's offspring. You're Abraham's offspring because you have the faith of Abraham, not because you have the blood of Abraham, I think is what he's saying. So this section closes uh, with verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. And this, this, this gets into maybe the, the section I love the most. Probably 3, 7 through the end of the chapter is my favorite section in Ephesians where Paul really gets into his ministry, his motivations. He prays for these people. Where have we heard God's mighty working and God's power already in Ephesians? Yeah, when he raised Christ from the dead. Paul now applies that same power not just to our salvation, but his calling as an apostle. God set him apart before his birth and called him to be a minister of this gospel. And look at 2 Corinthians 12.9 as another example. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient to you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power of grace in Paul's life saved him. The power of grace in Paul's life called him to the apostle. And the power of grace in Paul's life sustained him through every difficulty and trial. Where, where do we find the power to continue on in the midst of difficulty and suffering? It's in the cross. It's in grace, the divine enablement by God. And, and this is why Paul is, Paul is so consumed with grace, because grace not only called him to be an apostle, but grace, also, um, grace not only called him to be a Christian, but grace gave him his ministry. It's by grace alone that we're saved, and it's by grace alone that we're called into ministry and service, brothers. And this should, this should cause us to just be amazed at grace. To be amazed at what God does. And that he takes people who formerly hated his kingdom and hated his ways and makes them into Jesus worshipers and Jesus followers and brings them into the new creation kingdom. It's by grace alone that we're saved, and it's by grace alone that we're able to enter ministry, and it's by grace alone that we continue in ministry. It's a gospel of grace from beginning to end. That's what that means. It's a gospel of grace and God's kindness from beginning to end. 